You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Inequality is one of the dominant issues of our time, and Heather Boucher is an economist who has worked a lot on this subject. There's a great book out called Unbound, uh, sort of arguing about the relationship between inequality and growth. Uh, we had a great conversation, ranged across a, a range of sort of topics in economic policy, but really cuts to the heart of what a lot of people are worried about today. So check it out. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Heather Boucher. She is the president, CEO, and co-founder of the Washington Center on Equitable Growth. She's got a cool new book out. It's called Unbound, How Inequality Constricts Our Economy and What We Can Do About It. Welcome. Thank you. It's a treat to be here today. Thank you. Yeah. So this is, you know, economics, growth, big picture stuff. Um, it's sometimes hard to know where to start, but but one thing that that I think is important in this, there's, there's this metaphor that uh, an economist named Arthur Oaken uh, put into being a couple generations ago, right? And he said, he said that redistribution, that trying to equalize incomes was a, was a leaky bucket. Yeah. <laughs> and what that means, right? So the, the idea is you can, you can like take stuff from the rich and you can give it to the poor and you might want to, right? That might be a good idea, but like some of the stuff will leak out and that there's a, there's a trade-off between growth and equality fundamentally. I, I think that's, I think his book was called The Big Trade-Off. And, and he's like a left of center guy. So this is like a very dominant view in, in economics for, for a long time. And, and your book is like, like the opposite of that, right? <laughs> I, I would say yes, kind of the opposite. Um, so his book was called The Big Trade-Off, um, Equity and Efficiency. And, you know, he argued that you can help people at the bottom, but it's going to, you're going to reduce economic efficiency. And by that, he meant productivity. You're going to have these economic losses. But, you know, as I look back on what Oaken wrote, he's mm-hmm. a very important economist. He was the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Johnson. Uh, he was at the Brookings Institute. One of the things is that he wrote that book in 1974, mm-hmm. I believe. And that was the 
point at which the American economy was almost at its most equal, right? It was a period when about a third of American workers were in unions, when um, wealth inequality was nothing like we have today, income inequality. It was a very different kind of economy. And so as he was saying, well, you know, the challenge for policymakers who want to help the poor is that you're going to tax the rich and there's going to be these inefficiencies. Well, the economy that we live in today is so dramatically different where you've seen this sharp increase in market concentration, in the concentration of wealth across families, in the income distribution. That, to me, is one of the fundamental questions, right? Would he, if he were still alive today, would he have even written the same book? Right. Yeah. And because one of the views that that was widespread in that sort of two-thirds of the way through the 20th century economics was that inequality was unlikely to actually become super large, right? So the sort of implicit debate they were having, I think, like, they they were not imagining that if you cared less about inequality, you would get nearly as much of it as as we've had. They had these models, these theories, these economic tools that said, you know, that the market would deliver optimal outcomes. Economists had felt that they had solved a lot of the problems around how to prevent, you know, uh, depressions and all the things because we had developed all these tools and because the economy had been doing so well in, in many senses in the decades before. And we were an economy that grew together. And of course, I think it's so important to note at that moment we had these institutions that constrained inequality. We had unions. We had antitrust enforcement that was constraining market concentration, just to take two examples. And then, of course, much higher tax rates on the wealthy than we have today. So you had these institutions that kept them in check. And so then the question for the economic policymaker was, well, on the margin, how can you get growth a little bit faster? And how can you make sure that you are um, keeping the economy efficient? We still care about those questions today, but the world has changed. And that has just completely changed, in my view, the way that economists are asking that question. Right. And so and so since the time when 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 that book came out, uh, obviously policy shifted to allow for a lot more inequality. Top tax rates went down under Reagan, but also a lot of the sort of regulatory and, as you say, institutional framework was kind of torn down. And the idea was a rising tide would lift all boats. And I mean, what's interesting is that, like, not only has that not proven true, but like growth has slowed down. Yes. I mean, and it's remarkable. Um, You know, the rising tide lifts all boats. You know, we point back to that being from a speech that John F. Kennedy said in 1963. And when you look at the decades of the 1960s and 70s, we were an economy that grew at about 1.7% on average in terms of income over that time Mm -hmm. period. And where the vast majority of Americans saw their income grow at about that same rate. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you were poor, your income grew faster. If you're rich, your income grew slower. But then something shifted. You know, in the years after Oaken finished his book, a few years later, all of those trends took on a different uh, a different look. So growth slowed to about 1.4% per year since 1980. And only people in the top 10% experience income growth that is as much or more than that average. So the bottom 90% are no longer seeing the average growth. Such a very different kind of economy today, which brings up very different questions because you've seen two things slower growth and more 
economic inequality. And so the question we have to ask is, are those two connected? Right. And so it's, is this old positive trade-off real or actually does the trade-off go in the in the other direction? Because the the observed dynamic is that it's not that the rich got a bigger share of a faster growing pie, it's they got a bigger share of a slower growing pie. So wh- what what reason is there to think that that there's a relationship? Because one possibility is like it's just a coincidence, right? Like, I don't know, like science got worse um, and also we had tax cuts. <laughs> well, so it's a great question and it's one that I have been asking and as have many economists over the past decade. And so, so I mean, I think it's a hard question to answer because so much has changed, mm-hmm. right? So I think that that, and that is the first lesson, mm-hmm. is that it isn't just one thing, it's a host of things. But a host of things around a set of ideas that there was a set of economic theories and ideas that said the market is is mostly optimal mm-hmm. and there might be some tweaks we need to do around the edges but for the most part we need to focus on letting the market work its magic and it will deliver these optimal outcomes so therefore institutions that get in the way of the market mm-hmm. like antitrust enforcement or the like um those are actually um reducing economic productivity or efficiency or some positive outcome so that story about the relationship between the market and the state or regulation is one we've been living with for a long time. So as we've gone through time and seen these trends, and especially since the 2000s, economists have been looking at all of this new data, right? We've access to all this new data that allows us to look across all sorts of different characteristics. Economists call that heterogeneity, right? You have, we can look across the income distribution. And then, you know, new computing power, new tools that allow you to show causality mean that there has been an increasing amount of empirical evidence mounting where scholars have gone out and said, well, what does inequality do to this outcome that affects the economy? And finding, well, actually, this, you know, in this particular study, this particular kind of inequality is bad for productivity or bad for growth. And it's when you start to put those all together that the story emerges that it was the undoing of the institutions that constrained inequality in a variety of formats that allowed this shift in the economy to happen. So let's let's do a little explainering for, yeah. for people who don't know what like what what does productivity mean in this in this kind of economics context? So productivity, it's a great one, right? It's a how much stuff we produce per hour. So Mm -hmm. for you, Matthew, it's like, you know, how many of these interviews can you do in an hour? Well, I think you can probably only do one, but it's how much, um, you know, if it's in a manufacturing firm, you know, how many airplanes are going to roll off the assembly line every hour or the like. And we think that productivity goes up when we have new innovations, new technologies that allow us to do more with less. So we can make those airplanes faster or because of the introduction of some new tech that you have here in your studio, um, the quality of your podcast is better, the sound quality, or you're able to transmit it faster out there into the world so that you can do another one and, and get an audience. So that's what productivity is, doing more a little bit faster, a little bit better. Right. So, I mean, it's like podcast distribution, right? Like, obviously, we had microphones decades ago, but we didn't have really good ways to, like, get a lot of audio in front of people. There were uh, radio stations, but they were limited in quantity because if you put too much stuff on the radio, like the, the signals will jam each other, right? So we had a big technologically driven increase in the amount of 
I don't know, like people BSing around that, that we can <laughs> we can we can shoot out there. So even though it's right, it's like I can't talk any faster than a person 30 years ago. I do talk fast, but, <laughs> it, it, you know, so it's that's how like technology, right, can an investment because somebody has to has to do it, right? Like you have to build the broadband network right? physically, not just invent it. And that makes us more, more productive. Right. And so like one view of this was like, well, if we make like capital gains tax rates really low, then the payoff to investing in stuff will be really high and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll innovate a lot. Right. And the argument of that, right, to just flesh that out just a mm-hmm. couple more sentences, that argument is that if we lower the tax on either capital or on the wealthy, mm-hmm. they will just automatically take that additional money, all of that tax savings, and they're going to they're gonna invest it. Mm-hmm. And so the presumption is that what's driving that innovation is having enough capital. Mm-hmm. So now you start looking at the empirical evidence, and a number of things emerge. Um, one of the things that I focus on in one of my chapters is this, um, what I think is absolutely fascinating research by Raj Chetty and a bunch of co-authors, a whole long list where they looked at, okay, well, what actually drives innovation? Well, innovation is driven by humans, right? People with good ideas, doing new things better. And um, one way we measure that is whether or not somebody's applied for a patent, Mm -hmm. right? So people, so you apply for patents because it's a new idea. And what they were able to do is they had data on everybody who applied for and received a patent. They had data on those individuals' income, And they had data on that individual's third grade math test scores and their parents' income when they were in third grade. So they said, okay, so of the people that got patents as adults, did that have any correlation with their experiences as children? So the first thing they they learn is like, oh, okay, kids that do really good on those third grade math tests are much more likely to grow up and become an innovator, get a patent. Right. Okay, well, totally makes sense, right? That we all, you know, that smart kids grow up to be engineers. Right, totally. Um, and they invent new things. But then they also found that if you take those children that did really good on those third grade math tests, um, who were more likely to become innovators, and you look at it across income you find that the ones that are from higher-income families four times as likely to grow up and get that patent relative to everybody else, to lower-income kids. And that right there is a when you, when you put that in the context of an economy with rising economic inequality, that is a loss in U.S. productivity because there's smart kids who didn't have the good fortune of growing up in the right family who, who somewhere along the way are being thwarted from becoming the innovators that our economy needs. So there is some technology mm-hmm. that you could be using to get more podcasts out there that that kid didn't get to invent because they're, they're doing something else with their life because they didn't have that opportunity. Right. So this is like, this is a different model. Instead of saying, well, what we need is for there to be huge financial returns to inventing something awesome. We were saying instead, like a lot of people don't have the opportunities that more affluent and talented kids have, that parents who have resources look at a kid with high math scores and an interest in engineering and they like, I don't know, they like get them into good camps or, you know, they they, they do stuff to make sure that they cultivate and develop this skill. Whereas for a lot of other people, it's just sort of lost, right? They don't they don't have that encouragement, they don't have the extra resources they need. And so even though they were equally talented as young kids, they don't sort of get into 
into these fields where you could have kind of huge contributions. This is a great, this is a great it's study. An, it's a, it's so interesting. And of course, it's also true across race, across mm-hmm. gender. So, you know, boys are more likely to grow up and get patents and white children more likely than children of color. So it, there's there's axes upon which this 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 acts upon all these different axes of of um, inequality, but it really does tell us something fundamental about the importance of good public schools, mm-hmm. of you know making sure that there are those opportunities for children. Chetty himself talks a lot about mentorship, like whether or not children are even exposed to mm-hmm. people in these kinds of careers, which speaks to neighborhoods that are really segregated from different kinds of economic activities. So it's it's not just one thing, but it's a lot of different things that create that opportunity um, and that inequality really obstructs that. One of the things they found that I thought was was fascinating was specifically with with girls are less likely to sort of be inventors than boys controlling for math scores, but that girls who grow up in cities that had a lot of women inventors in it are are more likely, right? And specifically, they're more likely to get patents in the fields that women in the community where they grow up are working, which is it's one of these things where like you can't exactly prove why, right? But it's at least suggestive that something, um, I don't know, as like fuzzy and soft-minded as like role models, right, really matters to people. The kind of thing that you wouldn't, at least like the intro economics I was taught in college, you just like, you you wouldn't put something like that in your your charts, right? But that like investing in showing people, people showing kids people like them doing this work could have a high payoff. Exactly. And yes, and there's a lot of evidence from other fields. One thing I I talk about in the book um, a couple years ago now, uh, I was at the uh, American Economics Association meetings and Claudia Golden and her colleague were presenting this really, what I found to be this fascinating economics paper about how that is also true in economics. So to make it very personal to me, Mm -hmm. right, it turns out that um, exposing young women to women economists makes them much more likely to think that majoring in economics is something that they can do or should do. And so they're actually, um, economics is sort of known among the, the fields that require a lot of math as being one of them where there's the fewest women. So there's more women in math as math majors than mm-hmm. there are as economics majors, which doesn't make a lot of sense on some level. But they are looking across a number of universities and doing this experiment where if you do activities to get young students, women um, exposed to economics and to women economists does and a, a number of other activities, does that change their likelihood of, of majoring in this field? And as it turns out, it does. And I focus on that because as it turns out, there's other research that shows that the composition of who is an economist has an effect on how the scholar sees the weight of the evidence, right? So there's some very interesting papers from both the United States and abroad on basically ideology and political bias in in how economists interpret the research evidence and that that also uh, plays out along the lines of gender. So getting more women into this field, very important for public policy, Mm -hmm. if we think that they're going to bring different questions to the fore or have different um, conclusions from the research evidence, but it also just underscores what you just said, that um, that 
the ways that inequality, unequal access to something, affects who does a job, what that means for that profession, for that field, for that science, is far-reaching. And it isn't just, it's not as simple as the textbook, you know, Econ 101 supply and demand curves would, would have us think, especially in the, the areas around labor markets. Right. And well, this is, this is to, to your point, it's a question of what questions are you asking, right? Because the sort of incentive-focused view, it's not necessarily wrong, but if the only question you ask is about what what incentives do people have, you're missing the question of, well, what opportunities exist and what would create the, those rich opportunities? And and I, as I recall, I mean, what they say about the incentives also is that if you, if you think about the, the structure of the payoff, right? So it's like, obviously, if you found Facebook, you get like billions of dollars, but so few people win that lottery ticket, right? That it's not its not the case for the typical person, whether you like go into engineering and try to file for patents and get things, uh, the payoff to that is not substantially impacted by the question of like what taxes will you pay if you happen to find yourself with $40 billion. Yeah, the, the the research evidence is not there for that. It's also sort of just even hearing the way you're asking this you know, question, it's like we've disassociated the, you know, the joy of new science, of inventing something, of, you know, the ways that, that humans have created this productivity change mm-hmm. because there's something exciting about it mm-hmm. and assuming that the only reason anybody does anything is because of money, which is, of course, very, very important, but that there's a lot of other things that go into that equation equation as well. And that's where the the weight of the evidence is increasingly, uh, I mean, not just in this patents area, but in a, other, a, a wide variety of mm-hmm. subfields. Okay. I, w- I want to take a break. We, we need to meet our incentives to uh, sell ads here and then come back and, and come back to the antitrust question that, that you raised earlier. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. 
Real Traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. So, so you kind of mentioned uh, changing institutional environment, and you, you mentioned antitrust several times in that. And just to take people through this, because uh, I think, you know, we have antitrust laws, uh, mergers get blocked sometimes. Uh, what, what's the change that, that you're talking about here? Well, at some point, a number of decades ago, the to take you back like a century, right, we have these sets of antitrust laws mm-hmm. that were put in place at the turn into the 20th century that were in many ways designed to ensure economic competition, right, to ensure that there were enough actors in a given um, uh, industry so that there was competition across these firms. And at some point um, in the, you know, 60s and 70s, the shift in how we enforced these antitrust provisions changed from the idea that it was about ensuring robust competition towards a focus on a fairly um, narrow focus on what they call consumer welfare, which is that, well, it kind of doesn't matter how many producers there are if you can't show that that isn't um, increasing prices, that really the outcome metric we should be looking at is whether or not um, consumers are able to get whatever it is that they want to buy at the lowest price. Well, that's an interesting metric, but it shifts the, the conversation from the um, having a variety of producers and an openness for um, new entrants into a market to just something that is about the prices at the end. And it's very difficult to understand how you would know if prices could be lower if there's only two or three producers in a given field if it's not open because then you couldn't have the competition of a new someone coming in and disrupting that area. But so where we are now which I think is very interesting, is that after decades of this kind of enforcement and economists really playing this really key role in that conversation, there's this new um, conversation happening to reinterpret how we're enforcing antitrust and a push to say, hey, we need to be looking beyond this consumer welfare standard. And the place where I think it's most exciting and most important um, is how it affects labor markets, Mm -hmm. because that's been something that's been left out of the conversation for decades. So how does market concentration affect whether or not um, there's good jobs in your community or whether or not you as a worker have a lot of options, right? So are there a variety of different um, firms you could work for? I mean, the classic example that I always think about is nurses, right? In many communities across the United States, there may be a number of hospitals but they're all owned by the same firm. Mm -hmm. And so a nurse could work at any of them, but that's not really competition, right? And so the pay, the working conditions, they don't have a lot of options. So if the the hospital isn't being run well or the pay or conditions aren't great, there's, there's no place else to go. And so that has real implications for wages, for quality of life, for communities that we've really not been thinking about in recent decades. Right. And, and this makes a big difference because when you're adjudicating on a consumer welfare standard, if you're able to say to the regulators, well, like this merger is going to let us lay off 5% of our staff and also uh, keep 
raises down. You know, like that like sounds bad in the court of public opinion, but that's a winning argument in, in court because the thing you have to prove if you're challenged under the prevailing doctrine is that you have some reason you're doing this, right? Because you're doing the merger. So they, they expect you to think it will do something. And the suspicion is that it's going to let you jack up prices. So if you can say, oh, no, 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 it's going to let us hold down wages, that's not, like, that's great, right? Like that. Because <laughs> that means prices should go down for the consumer. But right. but there may be fewer consumers because there'll be a lot of unemployed people. So there's a there's a trade-off there, yeah. Right, well, <laughs> and it's a, it's a difference between thinking about a sort of like a one-off, right, and thinking about like the structure of, the economy overall. And, and and it's also the case for sort of for innovation, right? So I mean, I guess similarly to 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 the 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 question of individuals is like if you think the problem is that it just like costs a lot of money to innovate, then having like Amazon just dominate e-commerce is maybe good because they have a lot of money, they invest a lot, and you know, if they come up with good stuff. They benefit, we benefit. But if you think it's like it's hard, right? Like more people maybe like need a shot, but you can't you can't get it in a world that's just dominated by a couple big players. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned that because it is both, I mean, Amazon, there's this classic case of um diapers.com, which was uh, you know, a little startup that was selling diapers. Oh, this and, is a weird story. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's weird. And I, I don't remember all of every single like in and out of it, but you know, they're selling diapers online. This is great. They're making money. And Amazon wanted to buy them out and they said, no, like this isn't mm-hmm. uh, right. And um, so Amazon starts selling diapers, but undercutting the prices. And because they have all this capital, they're able to keep those prices low for long enough that diapers.com doesn't exist anymore. They were able to sort of keep them out of the marketplace. And that's just one example of how new ideas, innovations either get gobbled up by the by the big player or or never never sort of um, bubble up in the first place. And what's scary about that one, right, is, you know, it sends a signal to other people who might have interesting e-commerce ideas, right? It's like in the one case of the diapers, like, so a bunch of people got cheap diapers out of this, which, you know, good for them. It's, it's an important cost because Amazon <laughs> was just selling them at a loss. Um, the guys who founded diapers.com, in the end, they got some money because Amazon bought them. So they may be okay. But it's like anyone else who's like, okay, I'm going to do, you know, I don't know what, right? It's going to be internet socks or something like that. They now face like incredible skepticism from like, can you compete with Amazon? Because Jeff Bezos has this now like well-earned reputation for ruthlessness. Yeah. So why would you do that? And, you know, maybe we think that maybe we as a society could decide, well, that's a good thing because those smart people could take their energy and devote it to something else than, mm-hmm. than new ways of doing retail or whatever. But um, but I think a net, it's really bad for innovation because mm-hmm. you've you've closed off those avenues. There's um there's actually really interesting research now coming out of scholars that are sort of on the more macroeconomic side, who have been able to show that the long-term secular decline in investment in the United States is actually related to the rise in market concentration. Because as, you know, one would think 
that, oh, you have these big companies like Amazon, they have all this capital. Well, they should be investing in all this innovation, right? And you kind of think of, um, you know, I, for me, it's like you think of IBM or these companies mm-hmm. of yore that, you know, plowed all of their money back into new ideas. And certainly the today's, you know, concentrated firms are doing some of that, but actually relative to the amount of money that they have um, and their profitability, you're actually seeing less investment as we've moved to a more concentrated economy um, than we should be seeing. And so so it's the um so it's both your New ideas not bubbling up, mm-hmm. um, sort of the styming of entrepreneurship, and this economy-wide lack of investment in in the very thing that's going to drive our economy forward, that's going to create those rising living standards for decades to come, happening be, because you have this rising concentration and because our regulators have chosen not to um, enforce the laws on the books in ways that would open that up. So there's there are, there's a layer upon layer of mm-hmm. implications. And because we think a lot about competition in terms of prices. I mean, not just antitrust lawyers, but sort of common sense. But it, it also matters on the investment front, right? It's like you need to keep up with the Joneses if the rivals in your industry are putting out a better product or they are adding, I don't know what, they're adding uh, environmentally friendly features that appeal to people, right? You're going to get left behind unless you also invest and either match them or come up with something else that's appealing in in some different way. Whereas if there's not much competition, right, if you are like Verizon and Comcast and you just like you're sitting there and, you know, I I think a question that a lot of people don't know is like, well, where does the money go, right? If you have these big profits and and you don't have investment, well, that that is a good question. So there is a lot of a um, lot of research going on on this question. I focus on that at the um, penultimate, a word I love saying, penultimate chapter of the book. <laughs> um, and in that chapter, I interview um, Atif um, Mian, um, who's written done a lot of work with Amir Sufi. And one of the things that that he has been they have been documenting, but he talked about in an interview I did with him, is that. As we've seen this rising wealth concentration, larger and larger piles of wealth, we know from a lot of empirical research that the wealthy have a higher mm-hmm. propensity to save relative to the rest of us because they've got all this money. We also know that tax rates aren't necessarily what are going to make the difference as mm-hmm. to whether or not they save. So you've got a lot of savings going on. And in our models, that is just an identity with investment. More mm-hmm. savings in an economy, more investment. Automatic. Great. Well, as it turns out, more and more of that savings mm-hmm. is actually going into credit, not necessarily investment. Now, credit could be business credit because you want to start mm-hmm. up a new firm. You want to launch Vox. You're going to go out and borrow some money to you know, get the rent and hire the people. Or it could be going to households. Mm-hmm. And so what we've been seeing in recent years is that as wealth concentration has risen, that increased money flowing through the economy is actually flowing out to households in the form of debt. And as we learned during the financial crisis, a lot of households with a lot of debt, very destabilizing. It's not a solid foundation for an economy to stand on. And of course, it puts, for individual families, it creates real questions about economic security. But it is part of this distortion that inequality causes, because ideally, you would like to have money flowing to households so that they can be good consumers and buy all the goods and services that firms want to produce. But if instead, if 
they're not seeing their incomes rise, they're relying on debt, you've got this very unstable uh, scenario happening, which continues to be the case in the United States. Yeah, I mean, this point about accounting identity, it sounds boring, I think. But it's, <laughs> it's like, not boring. But like, it's really important because if you want to understand like what has been driving policymakers, right? Like the way this works, literally, because I, I, I think it's counterintuitive to people that anyone would ever think this, but you have to explain how well entrenched it is to understand how policy works. And so it's like saving is investment by definition. And so if you think about that, like rich guy, like that's right, right? So you you buy some stuff and then also you have like stocks or bonds or something like that. That's your savings, but it's also your investment. I have invested in stocks and bonds. But then you also say that like, Financial capital, wealth, is like the K term capital in the production function. That it, it's like you're, it's doing things right. We are. That's what we think of when we talk about businesses investing. Right? They're they've got a factory. They've got like some cool new machines. But in reality, as you say, like if I buy a securitized tranche of auto loans, that's investment. Yep. Right. If if we have uh, people are lending money to students to go to college, that's that's investment. Right. But from like a normal person's standpoint, that's just it's debt. Right. It is uh, middle class people are getting cheaper loans. Right. Than they used to. Interest rates are down. And that's where this savings has manifested itself is in uh, more people can get consumer credit. Yes. And and that's both because of the rise in the mm-hmm. savings flowing through the economy, because of changes in how we've regulated our financial markets. But it doesn't, it, it isn't necessarily, like you're not seeing this commensurate economy-wide increase in the kinds of, so you're calling me out for being an economist when <laughs> I say investment. It is always, you know, thinking in the, the economic sense of capital investment, investment in things that are going to improve productivity rather than, um, you know, your 401k or something like that, which is investment in a different sense. But what our economic models presume is that more money flowing through an economy, more wealth, is going to lead to those kinds of productive investments. And due to changes in, again, how we regulate financial markets and because there's just so much money flowing through the economy, it's leading to more debt. And that, it's destabilizing. I I think it becomes a tough one for people because it's it's better – for you know, if you're a middle class household, working class household, if you're struggling economically, it is better for you to be able to get access to credit than to not be able to, um, in in most cases. But it's substituted for like rising income. Yeah, what would be which which is worse, right? So it's like if you could take away people's favorable auto loan terms, but like they would have more money. Like that's that would be nice. That is where sort of connecting the dots between why do we have this rising inequality? Where is it coming from? And then how is that affecting the economy? So if what we've been seeing is this long-term rise in income from firms going to those at the top, not going to middle-class workers, not going to low-income workers, those families are then taking on debt in order to finance all the good things that they want and need. But that then is is 
still not redounding back to their incomes, Mm -hmm. but you've got this structure where because you've got these groups at the top that have more and more economic power, this concentration of resources, which is allowing them to continually extract more, then you have this very vicious cycle of distortion happening that is not going to get you back to this place of economic stability and where the kind of broadly shared prosperity that we should be seeing with such high profits, with such uh, an economy that's creating so much wealth. Um, like you're you're on this uh, treadmill that that you're not going to get off unless you address the fundamental issue, which is this rise in inequality. Let's take a break and then let's address the fundamental issues, solve all these problems. You know, make make it all good. <laughs> Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously, hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. Okay, so you you close there with a kind of you know a, a potent metaphor of the the income being being sucked up by by people at the top. <laughs> um, you know, and it naturally raises the question: is like, well, what do you what do you do about this? Like, do you um, do you, do you raise taxes and? expand some program? Do you, like, like what, what happens? Yeah, all the things. I mean, I think that <laughs> once you, I mean, you know, what, what, uh, what I try to do in the book is go through research that is emblematic of these new trends. Mm-hmm. And I break it down into three buckets, right? Mm-hmm. Inequality obstructs people's pathways up. Inequality creates subversions in the institutions that manage the market, so both in the market and in our governance structures, and it creates these distortions in consumption and investment. And when you take a step back and look at it, I think you have to start with addressing the subversive aspects of high inequality so that you can then deal with the obstructions and then that will those will then remove the distortions, right? Mm-hmm. And so, if you want to start with the subversions, it really does start by um, you know kind of going back to the progressive era and thinking about well, what were the things that we did then? Well, we thought a lot about how we regulated capital in terms of market structure and competition, and we imposed an income tax that, especially at the beginning, was primarily among those at the top. And I think looking at today's economy. We need to be thinking about how we tax capital. It doesn't make sense in an economy with so much wealth inequality where, and where we know that high income inequality calcifies into this greater wealth inequality. Why are we taxing capital at a lower rate than incomes, um, income that's earned from working for a living? So thinking about taxing capital, wealth taxes, other ways of taxing capital, income, I think is a really important place to start. And then thinking about the issues we've talked about around antitrust, re- framing that conversation. And then, you know, you use that tax revenue to do the things that are going to create those investments that remove those obstructions. I mean, personally, I would start, I mean, there's so much empirical evidence now, both from economics, but across disciplines, but um, that those years from zero to five, Mm -hmm. making those investments is what we need to be doing for our economy to be competitive throughout this century, it's where we're falling behind and it's where it's most important for humans, right, to make those investments in those early years. So, you know, we're not doing enough on access to universal pre-K or childcare or, um, you know, maternal health. There's a lot of there's mm-hmm. a lot of things there and not just maternal, paternal as well. At the same time, I think you have to think about what are the institutions that 
allow you to constrain inequality above and beyond the antitrust. And I think then you have to think about how are you giving workers some sort of bargaining power? Mm -hmm. Is that through going back to old-fashioned unions? Is that through, you know, mandating that, you know, to become a corporation, you have to have workers on your board? I mean, there's a whole long list of ideas people are talking about now. But I think you have to tackle both the subversive aspects of wealth inequality from the top and what are we going to do to um, remove obstructions? So by, by subversive, you mean like rich people, uh, like they they subvert the operation of, of the government? Yes. I mean, yes, that's a good question. So both um, the effect on politics mm-hmm. and on the market itself. So Amazon, right? That's mm-hmm. a, that They're subverting the market when I they, do. right? That's one. But then there's so much research from political scientists um, and from our own, I think, sort of like experience living here in Washington, D.C., about the effects of rising wealth concentration on our politics, on the agenda for politics um, that needs to be addressed. I mean, and for me, looking back at the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, here is a piece of legislation not popular no. among the public. People didn't want it. Most Americans aren't benefiting from it. Um, a boondoggle to those at the very, very top of the income distribution and making it difficult for us to make the investments in people and families and communities, and yet it passed. And when you look at the the um, news reports about who was lobbying for it and how many meetings and all the like, I mean, that's the kind of subversion of our democracy that is in the favor of um, rising wealth inequality. I mean, this is kind of a small thing, but but telling. There's been this amazing series of ProPublica articles about tax enforcement at the IRS and how they have come to focus more and more and more on sort of nitpicking. Uh, low-income people's EITC filings and less and less and less on trying to go after uh, rich people's, um, you know, hiding of income. And the most recent one of these I saw was the, the IRS finally sort of like coughed up an explanation and they said, well, we don't have enough money to take on like really difficult cases against people who have lots of lawyers and accountants and, and things like that. And, you know, you don't like to see any like agency understaffed to the point where it can't do its job properly. But the fact that you would, like, we would clearly bring in more money if we staffed the tax enforcement agency correctly. Um, You know, so it's not a, it's not even a question of being stingy, right? The way, like, I might wish some other programs had more, had more money. It's a deliberate, I mean, as you say, subversion of the purpose of the IRS to fund it at a level where they actually can't go after the the people who have the most money. At the same time, um, I was reading this morning a bunch of papers on the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and all of the different changes to the tax code that allow people to evade um, you know, shift their income from different sources so they can evade taxes. It is so while making the tax code increasingly complicated and creating more loopholes for those at the top and not funding the IRS to be able to track that. So you've made it the, you made their job harder and you haven't given them more money. So you've made their job harder in two different ways. This is, I mean, that's exactly the kind of subversion. And what that does, I mean, you're, you know, you point out, well, okay, we if we fully, if we gave the IRS the resources it needs, we would be able to bring in more of that revenue because we'd find people that are that are hiding their money. The other thing it does is that there's scholars that look into 
how people perceive paying taxes. And when the American public reads a story like that, right, as a taxpayer, you're like, oh, I'm so frustrated by that, right? Like, I'm doing my bit. I'm paying my taxes. I'm paying them on time. I'm going to H&R Block. I'm doing my thing. And yet this rich person is able to get away with not doing that. That That is also a subversion of our democracy, of the sense that we're all in this together, that we are all paying our part for the common good. I mean, so it becomes a values issue, mm-hmm. right? That this is this is a value that people believe, oh, I should pay taxes so that I get good roads and schools and all these things. But some people are getting away with it. Well, why am I the sucker? I should be. And so then that also creates a psychology where more people feel like they're being taken advantage of and are more likely to cheat on their taxes. And I think you've seen so many examples recently of, you know, the FTC fines Google for you know, violating its previous agreements. And it, it was something about marketing on, on YouTube, whatever it was. They get a fine and it's like, it's a lot of money, but you know it's not a lot of money to Google. And you know that like, I don't know, like if I just robbed a liquor store, like I'd get in a lot of trouble for that, right? People who steal cars and get caught, you get in a lot of trouble for that. Whereas for sort of the biggest players, you break the rules, I guess they hope not to get caught, but it's like it's not that big of a deal. And like those executives, like they're like everybody's still out there and they're still, you know, like the toast of the town. If they want to, you know, meet with politicians, nobody's like, ah, that guy's a crook. Right. And But you see it all the time. Right. Like the biggest, most famous companies, they get hit time and again with these kinds of fines. But it doesn't seem like efficacious. It doesn't it doesn't really curb their behavior. And it creates, I think. Like incredible cynicism about the idea of having law. Well, and then you've got people in so many communities around the country where because the local government is starved for money, they are fining people Mm -hmm. disproportionately low income, these high fines that people then can't pay. They're ending up in jail. Maybe they lose their job because they've got, you know, a job where they couldn't show up because they were in jail or, you know, they've got kids. Their, Their life is being sort of unraveling because they're not able to pay these fines. And yet... We're not we're not sort of taking as seriously those at the top that are not abiding by the kinds of rules that we all should have to abide by. So it's it becomes very unfair. And cynicism, I think, is the right word, right? I think when I look out on American politics, that sense of trust, mm-hmm. and we know from all the polling data that people don't trust government, they don't trust big institutions. And I think when you pair that with the research on inequality in this variety of axes, you can see this very clear overlay that as inequalities widen, you know, it's like the the wealthy act as this tug. They're pulling the rules more towards them. They're shifting the way that the economy works, the way our society works in their favor. And that's leading everybody to feel disillusioned by it. And I think just to riff on that in a slightly different direction, mm-hmm. one of the things that I took, you know, when you you finish a book and then like a couple months later, you realize like, okay, (laughs) this is what I really learned in writing that book. You get ready for your next book. Yeah, exactly. And one of the things that I think really, that like feels like a really strong conclusion for me at this point, after looking at all this research for so many years, is that we're living in a world where we think where the rules were made and our stories of how the economy works in our society we're formed in an era when we had much less inequality. And so you asked a few minutes ago, well, what is it that we need to do? On some level, 
I think we almost we need to take a step back and say, okay, when any of these situations, any of these policy situations we're looking at, the climate, the economic climate has changed profoundly and fundamentally. So in almost any policy area, there's a way that inequality is changing the landscape. It's changing how we need to act. And it's everything from, you know, the the, the taxes, the antitrust, the labor policy, to thinking about something like monetary policy, right? We know that we have these very low interest rates. Well, that's connected with the high wealth that's flowing through our economy. What does that mean for how the Fed needs to think about the, the effectiveness of the, their toolbox? Mm-hmm. And so... It is almost like climate change, right? You have this change in what in our what our economy looks like that that means that the old ways of thinking no longer fit this new reality, or maybe they do, but we need to reevaluate them. So, is that to say you're less about a particular prescription, like we need this three point plan, and more just to say, well, we need to we need to look at inequality as part of everything. I would say the latter. I would say that. The first thing in my three-part plan, I think one of the things that economists need to do and we're working on is giving policymakers and the public new tools. So we've been working um, with a number of economists who have connected the national income and product account data to survey data so that when the GDP comes out each quarter, instead of seeing this aggregate number, which tells you nothing Mm -hmm. about what the growth looks like across our society, disaggregating it. So that you can see, oh, well, GDP was 3% last year, but of that, we can see how much went to those at the top of the income distribution and how much went to those at the bottom. So I think actually the first thing we need to do is sort of unpack the the the, the longstanding ways we've been looking at the economy that were formed in an era that were more equal, where the aggregate meant something. It no longer means what it used to. And then I do think, you know, focusing on the top and pulling up from the bottom, and those are the places we need to look. But I think we do need to understand what inequality means more broadly. Yeah, I mean, people don't, I, I think, know this necessarily, but like GDP statistics are relatively new, right? I mean, it's from the late, late 40s, right? And so the economy was very equal at that time. There had been a huge war, obviously, and a lot of price controls and centralized wage setting. And so, I mean, it was hard work, right? Putting out the first GDP yeah. numbers. Uh, measuring inequality is also hard. And at that time, it didn't seem, it was legitimately not that important to to understand the distribution. And so it's like you're doing the best you can. Right. And so this is what they came up with. But we can do better now. We have more, like we have more spreadsheets. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> we do. We right? do. It's, it's, it's a lot easier to do debt analysis than it used to be. And it also matters more. But we haven't like changed up. There are just these like basic routines of well, and it's you know so many things like so many things in life, right? It's all path dependent. So we have GDP. Everybody now knows what it means. And the numbers come out, and all the all the journalists are like, "Oh, we know what this it means something." Mm-hmm. And I think what what the research should push us to say is it doesn't mean what you thought it did. It doesn't mean what it meant when Simon Kuznets put together the first national income and product account data um, uh, that came out in the 1940s. But how do we integrate that? with our understanding of inequality and how do we make sure that we 
reshape those the common indicators of of success, right? So we what we should be doing is looking at this disaggregated mm-hmm. GDP, and that should be our metric metric of success. It's going to give us a very different story. It's going to tell us, wow, the economy grew, and that means rich people got richer. Mm-hmm. And if you told that to the American people every quarter, they might be like, well, wow, that doesn't seem that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. How could we rethink what we're doing on a policy um, level? Uh, whereas now we're not giving them that information. And that has like a big impact across the sort of um, the rhythm of of the business cycle, right? That in the in the recent recession, it seems like like the stock market bounced back relatively quickly, and then people who are at the lower end of the labor market suffer from the the just the very long period that the unemployment rate was high. Well, definitely. I mean, the the stock market uh, wealth was back within a few years. Um, and profitability, but then median family income took almost a decade, mm-hmm. right, to to return to its pre-recession peak. In fact, we still haven't seen the employment rate back to the pre back to the two thousands peak that mm-hmm. it was, right? So, no these these things take longer. And if your metric of success is this aggregate mm-hmm. that no longer translates across the income distribution. You're you're taking this dwarf story, and especially if you're then standing there confused as to why the American people aren't happy that you know GDP grew, like like helping people understand, well, that doesn't mean anything. Sure. You know? So just like politicians, right? Like they they want to be popular. Yeah. They they want people to like. They them. want their data to match people's reality. It's a you know. Right. So I mean, because they want to have something to say that makes sense, right? And they want to know, well, like, should I expect people to be happy about this? And that's not a like a solution in and of itself, but it maybe like opens the door. To- it's a precursor. I think you you have to you have to. We live in this this era of all of this information, but yet some of the most basic things we tell ourselves just don't give us what we need to know. And then then once you have that information, yeah, then you have to understand what it means and and figure out where you can. Do you think um, you think Donald Trump's pouring over the distribution you know, of national I, accounts while he sends his tweets to Jerome Powell? Yeah. You know, you know, I. Th- but it is interesting. I think he might have a deeper, like a good innate sense of, of that it that uh, the economy hasn't been working for a lot of people. That uh, you know, <laughs> right? Yes, I guess if the data is bad, you're in good shape with with someone who doesn't know. Okay, well, <laughs> um, thank you so much. Uh, but but before I let you go, I, I like to ask people, uh, what, what what should I have asked you here? What 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 did you what did you want to talk about that I missed? Oh well. You know, I came here today in the hopes that we could talk about what would make our economy grow. Yes. And um, I feel like we've covered a lot of that. But this idea that we have to understand who the economy is performing for, who has access to resources, and what that access to resources does to political and social power. Um, that's that's what I wanted to talk about today, and I feel like we covered that in a variety of ways. So thank you so <laughs> that's much. That's good. That's good. Okay. Love to hear it. Um, so thank you so much, uh, Heather Bushi. The book is called Unbound uh, from the Washington Center on Equitable Growth. Uh, everybody should, should uh, check out the book. Also check out the center. It's got a lot of research up there all the time, commentary, great stuff. Uh, thanks so much to you. Thanks as always to our sponsors, our producer, Jeffrey Geld, and the Weeds will return on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. 
Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.